Our scripture today is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. If you're visiting with us as a church, we've been working through this entire book, the letter, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, a church that he had planted, a people he had discipled and and nurtured a few years before. He wrote a letter to a church that was less than five years old in the middle of the first century. And we've been reading this letter week by week, going through uh, different passages, considering it to be ancient wisdom for current issues. So if you've been following along with us, we're fast forwarding several chapters because today is Easter. Uh, And so we're, we're jumping ahead to the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm, I'm calling the message Easter Apologetics. And apologetics, if you're not familiar with the term, apologetics is basically the study and practice of discussing the, val- the validity of Christianity's claims and the validity of the Bible's claims. Now, although originally the Greek word apologia meant a defense, it I don't want you to think of this as though we're trying to or can defend God. It's been said about truth and about the God who shares his truth with us uh, that truth is like a caged lion. You don't need to defend it, just open up the cage and the lion will defend itself. Apologetics instead, from a Christian perspective, is basically answering our questions, answering our doubts, answering our personal objections about the Bible with the Bible itself, with the claims that it makes about itself and about its own claims. And of course, that's all supported with theology and uh, sometimes philosophy and archaeology and basic logic and things like that. But apologetics is basically answering our questions and doubts and objections about the Bible and Christianity with the claims it makes itself. And the Bible claims that the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is proof and therefore hope of new life 
and permanent restoration. There is no Christianity without this. The Bible claims that the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is proof and therefore hope of new life and permanent restoration. The resurrection is proof that God is remaking humanity and all things. Now, Paul, as you read what he says in the beginning of chapter 15, Paul is very direct and very clear about what he was communicating and what the other apostles had been communicating for basically over 20 years since the crucifixion of Jesus. And he says in the first two verses, now, I would remind you, brothers, he means brothers and sisters, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you've believed in vain. You see, right there, uh, there's something that we have to make clear right from the beginning, that the dissemination of this gospel, just mean, the word means good news, the spreading of this good news was intended originally to solicit a response in people. If you read what Paul's saying, he's making it very clear. I gave you a message, uh, something was presented to me that I in hand, in turn, presented to you to be heard, to be accepted, and to be embraced. A message which has not only been embraced by you, but a message that actually saves those who embrace it. Paul wasn't presenting, the apostles were not presenting 2,000 years ago an opinion piece. They weren't presenting, um, they weren't presenting a legend or a myth or a fantasy novel. They were presenting news of the highest urgency, which it had a response and Paul was very clear about that. He's also clear about the details of what he's communicating. What did he say in verses three through six? Now, scholars believe that embedded in what Paul is saying here in these verses was the most ancient and original of universal creeds that the first Christians believed and agreed upon. And he quotes it and says, this is what I passed along to you. This is what you stand by. This is what you've agreed upon. And this is what saves you, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now we could spend weeks just talking about in accordance with the scriptures. <laughs> we can't because of time today. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. He appeared to Peter, then he appeared to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Now, let me ask you a question, and you can give me a response if you want. How do you know when you're reading a myth or a legend or a fairy tale? How do you know? You can, you can tell me. How do you know when you're reading a myth or a legend or a fantasy book? Yeah, Ethan, how do you know? You just sort of know that it's kind of fake. Okay. And early on in life, we hear stories and, and we start to adjust when we hear the nature of the story based on its characteristics. What are some characteristics of a fairy tale? Jonathan. Okay, it's not grounded in our reality. All right. Yeah, yeah, right next to Jonathan. Something you've never seen happen? Uh, maybe, yeah, in some cases, yes. Um, I've, I've never seen 
I've never seen uh, somebody kiss a frog and that frog turn into a prince. But there are other things scientists would say um, and people of logic would say that just because I've never seen them happen and just because we have never seen them happen do not mean that they're logically or scientifically impossible. It just means they haven't been observed yet like a black swan. What else? How do you know when you're, when you're reading something that, uh, yeah, Jed? Creatures, peoples, or languages that don't have any existence in our world. Yeah, okay. I, I hear what you're saying, Gabe, in the back. Talking animals? I don't know. My cat talks to me. At least I talk to her because we have this love-hate relationship. Okay, Gabe. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Any other? How do you know? Yeah. Supernatural. Supernatural? Huh. Okay, that's how you know. So, so that's how you know that something's a fairy tale if it's supernatural? Okay, fairy tales usually have supernatural. Pumpkins turning into coaches, okay, okay. A lot of people think that about the Bible, though. They go, it's just like one big fairy tale. Pumpkins turning into people and, and oceans parting. Is it, isn't it just a bunch of baloney? Maybe one or two more. Yes, Ella. Okay, you, fairy tales aren't what God says, so they aren't real. So you're, you're, you're distinguishing, Ella, between the storyteller. Who's telling the story? And are they reliable? Excellent. Maybe one or two more. Yeah. Oh, hey. I was actually looking for that. Once upon a time, in a galaxy far, far away, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. And you know, okay, this is make-believe right now. I got it. Right from the first phrase. One more in the back. You, okay, he, he said it. Okay, good. Excellent insights. Thanks, everybody. Man, it's great having some of the kids in with us because they've got all sorts of things to say. Thanks, kiddos. Uh, okay, so yeah. It, it, all right, exactly. Look, the early Christians were not doing that. You can look at the Bible and say, it's a bunch of baloney. Do people really believe this stuff? But the people who wrote the Bible did not intend at all to be taken metaphorically or symbolically. Look at the way Paul is speaking as a fifth witness to the resurrection. There are four gospels all agreeing with what Paul's saying here. And this was way earlier historically than the gospels were written. This reads like an eyewitness history. They believe what they've seen and heard. And look at what he says in verse 6. He appeared, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time, most of whom are still alive. Now, Paul writes this letter early to mid-50s in the first century. The crucifixion is roughly 30 AD, roughly, give or take a few years. So we're talking 20 plus, 20 to 25 years after the crucifixion, Paul writes this letter about an account that everyone agrees upon that is at least 20, 25 years old. Okay, I know what I was doing 20 years ago. Most of the people in this room know what they were doing 20 years ago. And I thought about it this week. Some people are shaking their heads because you weren't alive. Um, <laughs> um, and a day's going to come where I'm not going to know what I did 20 years ago. 
but I'm not quite there yet. But right now in life, I do, I do have the capacity. I may not realize that people are standing or sitting in front of me, unfortunately, but I do know what I was doing 20 years ago. And Becky and I had been married less than a year. Becky was getting ready to graduate college. I had already graduated. I was getting ready to go to seminary. And right around now, in the spring, we were planning a cross-country road trip from New York to Colorado with a couple of friends. Now, everybody on that trip and many other family members and uh, friends of ours could tell you 20 years later what we were doing on that trip, where we ate, where we slept, the interstates that we drove, funny stories, funny things and incidents that happened, discouraging and scary things that happened with great detail. And if I wanted to tell you a story about what didn't happen and present it as though it were true, there are plenty of people alive today in my life, and you can find them all on Facebook, who could verify whether or not I was selling you a lie. And that really is Paul's point. Hundreds of people can verify the claims that I am making, that I am reminding of you. The Roman roads are here, anybody, could have denied what the apostles were saying. Now, if a few power mongers of the day were just trying to concoct a lie, this was not the way to do it. Presenting details that could have been denied by hundreds of people in the very same generation? Because Paul is saying there was a physical death that took place. There was a physical resurrection that took place. And it was witnessed publicly and privately, and this was a thorough thing. Luke, the careful doctor in his history of all of these events, in Acts chapter 1 said, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And all of this is to simply say, in an abbreviated way, that the gospel of Christianity does not promote blind faith, common, uh, despite popular uh, common opinion. It's not about blind faith. It is about verifiable facts inviting a response. You're free to deny all of these things. But you cannot dismiss them with integrity. So test the facts for yourself. Test the facts for yourself. Now proof of one human being's resurrection gives us hope of the resurrection of many, many more. The resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is therefore hope for your permanent restoration. It is not just objective, it is subjective. This applies to you and I. Christianity has always promoted not only a spiritual renewal, but a physical alternative to universal decay and death. Now think about what just happened a week ago in Paris. I was reading an article in the New Yorker quoting a French restoration expert who is a part of the campaign that's been going on for years to restore the cathedral. And he made a very interesting comment about the restoration process and about the recent fire. 
He said, in wanting to give her a second youth, we have perhaps destroyed her. Great monuments crumble. We've seen that in our own country. Monuments crumble. Priceless works of art decay. Our bodies suffer and get sick and die. As Paul would say in another letter, all creation groans. And even our attempts, our attempts to restore and to rehabilitate and to cure uh, are only so effective. Everything we rehabilitate, everything we cure, everything we renovate eventually dies in the end. And we plainly see this. And so we accept it. We accept it. And we even expect it. What's unexpected is the hope that what's been lost, that who has been lost will be restored. We dare not hope for that. We dare not even think of it sometimes, but secretly, we wish it to be true. You do. I think Bruce Springsteen was on to something years ago when he sang the words, everything dies, baby, that's a fact. But maybe everything that dies someday comes back. More than a holiday, today is about resurrection, real physical, material resurrection as an alternative for you to living a life and in an existence of resignation. Because this happens to culture and government and relationships and our very bodies, we just have to find a reason to get out of bed in the morning and make life work until we die. That's a reasonable point of view. If there's no resurrection... Resurrection, Jesus physically coming out of the tomb is an alternative for you and for me to not live a life of resignation. Now look, our doubts and our objections, our unbeliefs are nothing new. They do not intimidate God and they do not, um, they don't turn him off to you actually. You know, if you read the gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28 the big great commission when the risen Jesus says, now go into all nations and make disciples and baptize and teach to obey everything that I've commanded to you and behold, I'm with you always until the very, very end. That, that famous account before Jesus ascended, it actually says, if you read it, that when he appeared to them there, uh, many worshiped him, but some doubted. Even people who saw the risen Jesus doubted what they were seeing to the point where there was, there was an entire branch of, of religion in the, for the first few hundred years that actually thought that God could have never become a physical human being and, and Jesus could have never physically risen from the dead. It was all symbolic and spiritual. It was so tempting for the ancient Greeks and some of the ancient Jews to think that way. But that's not what Paul's saying here. And it's not what the original Christians believed and claimed that they saw. Actually, Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas, we, we blame him too much. He was an empiricist. He was just 1,500 years ahead of us. He, just, he was a, like a scientist. He wanted to see the physical proof. He wanted to be able to verify it objectively. Uh, and Jesus was patient with him. Jesus didn't reject Thomas for his doubts and concerns. Jesus ac accommodated Thomas's doubts. 
Jesus drew Thomas close to him and comforted him and gave Thomas what Thomas needed to believe. Paul is perhaps the greatest doubter. Paul was so doubtful that he was hostile and hateful. And he says in this very passage that that he persecuted the church of God. But Paul changed because he saw the risen Jesus, he said. And in verse 10, he said a beautiful thing, by the grace of God, I am what I am. So look, the earliest doubters and skeptics and enemies of the resurrection, some of them came around. God met them where they needed to be met, and he can do the same for you. And Jesus would say to Thomas, when Thomas touched the physical risen body of Jesus of Nazareth, and when Thomas said, my Lord and my God, Jesus said to Thomas, you have believed because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The resurrection is ultimately about a person who is his own apologetic. The claims of Christianity don't point us to a system or to a philosophy, although it does give birth to great systems and philosophies. But Christianity points you not to an agenda or to an ideology, but to a person. The greatest apologetic, the greatest explanation and response to our doubts is Jesus himself, who hated death so much that he became a human being to pull us out of death. A person who loves us so much that he became, literally became our sin to cleanse us from our own sin. A person who despises injustice so purely that he will return to correct it all permanently. A person who enjoys his creation so much that he promises to restore it. So that all that you know now and all that you enjoy is just a shadow of the true reality of it. Christ's nature, Christ's character, the man himself that Thomas beheld, the man that Paul saw, the character of the man, Jesus as a person, he's the person that we dare not hope but truly wish exists. This is ultimately about whether or not the kind of person that you truly can rely on, that can truly love you, that can truly defend you, that can truly be all things to you, actually exists. I know you haven't found that person yet, and you won't. But the hope that that person exists is answered in Jesus. And testing the facts yourself will ultimately lead to him. So test the facts. But ask for faith. The facts alone won't do it. Faith interprets the facts and makes them real to you. Test the facts. Ask for faith. I challenge you. I double dog dare you. 
ask for faith to believe in Christ's resurrection and in your own. The resurrection is proof and therefore hope of new life and of permanent restoration. What we renovate and what we rehabilitate and what we cure and what we restore still perishes. But what God restores is permanent. Why not test that? Why not bring your doubts and objections to Jesus? Even if you're filled with hate, bring it to Jesus. He can handle it. And he won't hate you back. And you'll never regret it. Let's pray. Father, we echo in faith the words of Thomas, our Lord and our God. And we echo the words of Paul, Father, we're like people untimely born. Uh, we're like people who don't deserve to be here because what we have done and because what we have said and because what we have thought. But by the grace of God, we are what we are. Give us endurance to test the facts with integrity, with a clear conscience. But Father, I pray that you would give us faith to ask you to reveal Jesus to us. And in his name, the hope of glory, Jesus Christ, we worship you. Please bless all of my friends here and whatever events and meals they're going to, bless them. We thank you for this beautiful weather and for this wonderful place in which we can meet. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.